0: Before we go to God's Word, let's go together Together in prayer. Oh, Father God, as we come before your Word, Lord, we ask that you would indeed open this text up to us. May we come to know Christ better by your Holy Spirit through this Word this day. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin to follow along. You have your own translation in there and a place where you can write some questions down if you have. And again, please, um, if you ask questions, please put your name on here so I know whom to answer. That makes it less frustrating for each of us. And then um, it's good to be back. I send you greetings from Spout Springs Presbyterian Church in Ripley, Mississippi. I uh, got to preach four times over the past week with them in their spring uh, conference. Uh, your prayers were very obvious uh, to the Holy Spirit, moving to build up the saints there and to give them a more robust appreciation of the gospel in their daily walk. So I thank you, and they thank you uh, for that. You know, I just I just love how the church works that way. How two different parts of the church who've never met each other are working as a team. For the gospel, most likely you will never meet anybody from Spout Springs Presbyterian Church, nor will they meet anybody from Trinity. But here we got Ripley, Mississippi and Orangeburg, South Carolina working together. Them praying for us and us praying for them. It's it's great. and Because being the church means being Christ's team like that. And that's exactly where we are in the book of Philippians uh, today as we finish up chapter 1. Paul is building the team there at Philippi. He, he reminds them of the joy of Christian life is in a partnership together, in community together. Partnership with Christ means partnership with each other. And so to that end, we've seen that we're to focus on the advance of the gospel, not our own personal advance. Which means sometimes that we have to kind of take one for the team in order for the gospel to win, we may have to suffer something a little bit. Paul has prayed that they would have that understanding in this chapter. Paul has demonstrated that he's going through that exact same thing in this chapter. And now as he closes up this chapter, he is charging them to see that is what's happening in your life as well. You are being called now to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul has told them that His circumstances have worked out to advance the gospel, and so too will theirs. And so during their challenges, Paul warns that they must not retreat into a selfish concern only for themselves, rather they must stay unified in the gospel against common opponents. So with that background, would you look with me please at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, this is. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Oh, this is God's word. So here's what we're going to talk about today. I want to give you a theme, and you can remember this. Perhaps at lunch we were talking about the sermon. so help you remember or throughout the week when you bring it up in your mind. Here's what we're going to talk about today. When life gets tough, we prove the reality of the gospel. You see, the gospel is a declaration of war against the world. And when the world fights back, we will know where we really belong at that point. So let's walk through this together and see how Paul unpacks that for us. The first thing we see is that Paul calls them to be gospel citizens, Paul, if you remember last passage, or if you weren't here, the passage right before this, he he sets aside his personal wishes, his personal desires for the good of the gospel. And now in verse 27, he calls them to do the same thing. Look with me at verse 27. He tells them to live worthy of the gospel. It's actually more technical than that. It, It means to live as a citizen of the gospel, We're to root our identity. We're to root our behavior in who we really are, citizens of heaven. See, this language that Paul uses here speaks right to their life. Philippi, in case you're not up on ancient Philippi, let me help you. Philippi was a colony of the city of Rome itself. Many cities were founded by other cities. Rome itself founded Philippi. It was like a daughter city. If we plant a church, it's our daughter church. Philippi was a daughter city of Rome, and it was a military town. It was set up for a lot of the legionnaires to retire there. It had a higher percentage of Roman citizens than a normal town would have, and it had an easier path to citizenship than most Roman cities had. So they had a special relationship. So there's a good chance, for instance, that the Philippian jailer from Acts 16, that, who was part of this church, that he was a Roman citizen. And he's probably not alone in the church being a Roman citizen and so Paul appeals to that, and he says, look, be who your citizenship says you are. Act in such a way that you are worthy of your citizenship. Now, I want you to understand that because we don't have that idea of earning citizenship because it's granted to us at birth by, in America. Now, if you're an immigrant, you kind of get it better than the, we native-born ones get it. So I want you to feel this. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of a poster that I have hanging in my office next to my Churchill shrine, as has been affectionately called. This is a World War II poster. Obviously, it's an homage to the Uncle Sam from World War I. Here's Winston Churchill pointing and just says two little words, deserve victory. And it says so much, doesn't it, to a wartime London, suffering food shortages, bombings, having to really dig in deep to help their culture survive. Doesn't just say so much? Just deserve victory earn it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Deserve the gospel. Not earn it, No, you know, you already have it, now deserve it. Live as one who has the gospel. Specifically, live your life in such a way that you reflect the reality you serve King Jesus. Now, as soon as I say that, 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 that kind of sinking feeling starts right about here, doesn't it, for some of you? Right? And you hear it right now, oh, I'm not a good Christian. I've got to live better. I've got to do better. I'm not serving King Jesus. I'm I'm going to do better. And you start listing all these behaviors. You start feeling guilty. I mean, you're doing it right now. I know you are. Here's what's great about Scripture. It doesn't leave us to wallow in guilt and to make up our own ways and, okay, well, here's what it means to be a good, I've got to figure out how to be a good citizen. No, it tells us right here in the next couple of verses, it tells us three ways in verses 27 and 28 to be gospel citizens, and we're going to look briefly at all three of them. It's real easy. Standing firm in the Holy Spirit, striving side by side for the gospel, and then not frightened by your opponents. That's how Scripture says you be a good citizen. You don't have to come up with it on your own. You don't have to try to figure out how to be more godly. It's right there. So let's look at these together. What, what does it mean here? First, standing firm in the Holy Spirit. Well, the ESV does a rare miss here. It's not one spirit. It's actually the Holy Spirit. So Paul says standing firm in the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses a military concept to help them understand what he's talking about. And I want to help you understand that as well because, again, we don't have these, the same mental pictures. So December 1944, those of you who know your history, we're talking about World War II. Throughout, throughout the entire summer and the fall for the last six months since D-Day, the Allies have been steadily pushing east towards Germany. Germany makes one final last push in December called the Battle of the Bulge, to try to turn the tide of this front that's smothering them. And the key to the Battle of the Bulge was this one little town called Baston. Baston was called the Road Octopus because every little road in this little part where they were going to have this battle went through Baston. The Allies already had it, but they'd kind of withdrawn from the town. And so Eisenhower realized, I've got to get there first. And the Germans realized, we've got to get there first. So Eisenhower turned to the 101st Airborne Division and he sent them in with the very simple orders, hold Bastogne no matter what. Stand firm in Baston and don't give up. And that's the word Paul uses here. Stand your ground in the Holy Spirit. Hold this ground no matter what. Against the culture's onslaught, stand firm by the Spirit's power. And this is plural. This is to the community. If you're thinking like an individual, you think, okay, that means I have to know what I believe and be ready to... No, that's not what he's saying. This is stand in unity as a church. Against the culture's onslaught, we stand firm together. We don't give up ground. Apparently, there is probably some sort of discord at the Philippian church. Paul tells them, live as fellow citizens. Citizens are on the same team. The opponents are out there not in here, so quit fighting with each other and stand firm. Second thing he tells them, they should should be striving side by side. Again, this is another military concept Paul uses. I think that the Philippian jailer must have had a very fruitful ministry to his fellow soldiers. Because throughout the book of Philippians, Paul keeps using military terminology that he doesn't really use in his other letters. So I think that this church may have, in a military town, it makes sense, had a higher percentage of military people. So he's talking their language. He kind of actually pulls some imagery right out of the boot camp manual, if, if you would. And what he says here is no different. If you saw the movie about 15 years ago, Gladiator with Russell Crowe. I know he's Noah now apparently, but he used to be a gladiator. Uh, In the movie Gladiator, he's this famous general, he's betrayed, he's sent to slavery, he has to fight in the Colosseum, and he gets there to Rome to fight in the Super Bowl Colosseum. He and these other slave gladiators are in the middle, and they're looking at the tunnel, and they don't know what's going to come out of that tunnel, but it's going to be big, and it's going to be bad, and it's going to try to kill them. And they're all just kind of standing there waiting for it to come, and he kind of just very quietly goes, whatever comes out of that tunnel, we have a better chance if we stand together. And most of them agree. A couple of them don't. So he kind of takes command as a former general and leads them like an army. And they're supposed to die. And instead, they actually beat the big, scary stuff that comes out of there. And throughout the fight, like, stand is one. Over here is one. It's this great idea. You fight together, you stand side by side. That's exactly what Paul says here. Armies win not because individuals do great things, but because units do great things together. In the face of cultural pressure. In the face of outright persecution, the church, by the Holy Spirit, stands firm in unity and then counterattacks for the gospel, with the gospel. It's this beautiful idea of a military formation. Here's how a pastor from about 500 years ago named John Calvin, here's how he puts it. says, he calls them to notice that they are fellow soldiers who having a common enemy and a common warfare ought to have their minds united together in a holy agreement. So you see, look, y'all are soldiers. Y'all are in a war. You can't be fighting each other. you got to fight out there, so stand as a unit. That's how you're gospel citizens. You know, we in the American church, we haven't really had to be concerned about unity that much, have we? But now in an increasingly post-Christian culture, a post-Christian country, you better believe we need to start working on unity. I mean, I want you to think right now in your mind, the places in the world where the church is underground, where pastors are arrested routinely and harassed, where gatherings have to be in secret, where the fear of the government is palpable. I want you to think of those congregations. Do you think they argue about the foyer furniture? Do you think the color of the carpet splits the church? No, because they recognize we're in a war, we are unified together, and all that stuff doesn't matter. We're we're about the gospel. But in a church that has no persecution, we get to infight. So one of the things that we need to recognize as gospel citizens in America in 2014 is that we need to start being more unified because the enemy's coming. The conflict is coming. It's not something we pull ourselves up. We do it by the Holy Spirit. We stand firm in the Holy Spirit and we strive together side by side. And the opponents must be pretty bad because the third thing he tells us about being a good gospel citizen is we're not to be frightened by our opponents. And you guessed it, Paul uses yet another military idea here. which, By the way, does it kind of change your perspective a little bit on the relationship between the church and the culture when Paul keeps using military and and warfare metaphors to describe that? Especially since so many of us are quite comfortable with culture. Does it kind of mess you up a little bit? It messed me up this week when I, was, when I was studying. Y'all can just have that one for free. That was an aside. So, not frightened by your opponents. So in combat, in battle, once you stand firm as a unit, once you've repelled an initial attack, there comes a point where the other side either gives up and retreats or where they regather and they attack again and you either stop them or they keep advancing and if they have the ability they want to advance right up to you and advance through you and that's the point where they get right there where sometimes often panic sets in in the defenders and if they are not trained and ready this is when they drop their weapons turn around and every man for himself run for their life Paul's term here is the specific term for that kinda panicking melee This isn't the normal word for frightened. He says, don't turn around and panic in battle and run away. Stand your ground. Don't get afraid. Say every man for himself and run. Gospel citizens don't panic and retreat in the face of a cultural onslaught, is what he says. See, Christians are not to respond to the intimidation and aggression of our opponents by scattering and panic by being silenced in fear. And don't overlook this fact. In the midst of all this militaristic language, Paul does not call them enemies. He purposely does not use that military word. Instead, he uses a word from the athletic world for an opponent in a contest, not an enemy in a battle, because the battle's real. The enemy of the church is real, Satan. But the tools that Satan uses, the people, are not our enemies. Never forget that or we lose our credibility as gospel citizens. So gospel citizens stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Gospel citizens strive side by side in unity. And gospel citizens are not frightened. We don't panic by opposition from our opponents. It's this wonderful, unique blend of boldness and yet there's humility here. of of not being intimidated, but not being belligerent either. And this is only possible by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, boys and girls, I I apologize. I've been using some big words here, but I want you to understand this too. So would you grab your bulletins and look with me at your translation of verse 27 and 28 and see what it says. Here's what Paul is telling them. Since by the gospel Christ made y'all his special people live like it it shouldn't matter if i'm there watching or not i should hear that by the holy spirit y'all are unified fighting as a team for the gospel and not scared when others are against you you know boys and girls you ever been made fun of at school perhaps or sometimes even at church unfortunately isn't it nice that when you're being made fun of that there's a friend there Isn't it nice that you can have a Christian friend? See, Jesus gives you other Christians to help you stand firm when you're being attacked. That's what Paul's talking about here. And because of what Jesus has done, we can be brave for him. And so what that means for all of us is that we are to live in such a way that it enhances the reputation of the gospel. We're, we're mixing humility and we're mixing strength against the attacks of culture because when life gets tough, that's when we prove the reality of the gospel in our lives or not. In other words, to a watching world, gospel citizens provide gospel evidence. Look with me at the second part of verse 28. Paul tells them, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. And the word clear sign there is better translated as evidence or proof. See, the unity of Christians under pressure proves the reality of our words. When people come from, the, and they see well, the church is kind of getting some pressure, and they come in and they see this infighting, and they've got nothing, there's nothing there. But instead, Paul says, no, this is evidence. When you stand firm together, when you're a gospel citizen, that proves the reality. When life gets tough, we prove the reality of the gospel. And notice how intense this is. Christian unity and pressure proves that salvation is real. And what else does the verse say? It proves the destruction of opponents is real. Now, before you freak out, See the grace. See the hope there. Standing firm in the gospel, even when we're opposed, shows that the church is real. And it shows our opponents they're on the wrong side of that reality. And some of those opponents will see that and come to our side. Our standing firm gives evidence of the gospel, and that evidence bears fruit. This really happens. This is happening right now. Christians... In Egypt, right now, April 2014, have for the last several months, a year or two, really endured some of the worst persecution in Egyptian history. Mubarak was a dictator, absolutely, but as a dictator, he said, no Muslim persecution of Christians, period. And so there wasn't any. Now that the dictator was gone and the Muslim Brotherhood kind of took over through elections, the persecution of the Christians in Egypt has been nasty, nasty. Nasty, nasty. It's, it's hard to sell toys in a commercial right after you cover that so our news doesn't really cover it. So, but it's nasty. Churches have been burned. People have been murdered in the streets. Nuns have had unspeakable things done to them all in the name of a false God. And the church has stood firm. The church has not given up. The church has been there. They've refused to back down. They've still served the poor, even Islamic poor, they're there. And now that the Muslim Brotherhood is on the way out since the latest revolution and people are rejecting that whole lifestyle, the reports coming in from the church are that people are coming out in droves to churches going, y'all have got something real because we watched you stand firm. We want to know what you have. This is real. And the church in Egypt is actually undergoing what we would call a revival. It's an amazing thing. Their gospel evidence is bearing fruit because they've endured amazing persecution. Gospel evidence comes from gospel citizens. So so Pastor Sean, what you're telling me is that in response to the increasing attacks of the liberals, in response to our religious liberty going away in the name of tolerance, that I'm not supposed to get mean and nasty and bitter, and angry and, and, and snarky on Facebook towards those sinners out there? Correct. Yes. God's word says faithfulness is our weapon against the opponents. Not snark on Facebook. Your status updates don't help. Please stop. Your links to those questionable websites that don't fact background check and fact check, they, they, they don't help. Don't stop. Next time you're angry... Post a Bible verse. Because God's Word says faithfulness, not our junk, are His weapons against the opponents. It's not our words, it's our life, our actions, and our attitudes. That's the evidence of the gospel that overcomes the oppression. Joyful Christians, even in persecution, are powerful weapons in God's hands. When we are joyful in the face of outright or subtle persecution, it shows our opponents there's something real in our life. And some of them will be attracted to it. I mean, think of Paul and the Philippian jailer. Paul was in prison, beaten, and he is singing hymns. And the jailer is noticing this. There's an earthquake. Paul is set free physically. He could walk out of the jail, and he does not. And so what's the, what is the first thing that the Philippian jailer says to Paul then? How can I be saved? This happened in the life of the Philippian church. They knew it happened. And again, this is not about the individual. This is about the community. This is specifically about our faithfulness expressed as unity preaches the gospel to a watching world. So from the Philippians who lived it, From the Egyptian Christians who are living it and to we American Christians who are about to live it. It may seem that the opponents have the upper hand against the church. But verse 29 says all persecution is a road sign pointing to the gospel. It's a clear sign to those opponents of their impending doom. And it's proof of the reality of God's grace to us. And so as we see Christian morality crumbling in our country, we can get upset, we can get angry, we can get attacking, or we can see it for what it is. Pray for unity and then rejoice that we have an opportunity to live through such times. Because you do realize that the the, the gospel foundation of that nice Christian morality, that left America decades ago. That's not new. And so it's only taken a couple decades for that morality to crumble without a foundation but if we are obedient and growing disciples of christ gospel citizens giving gospel evidence standing in unity in the holy spirit we can be what god uses to rebuild that gospel foundation for our culture so our children and our grandchildren could perhaps live in the country we remember fondly that may or may not have actually existed a culture that doesn't despise our faith. The task is ours as gospel citizens to give gospel evidence. The question is, will we? But to ensure that happens, the Lord does not leave it up to our strength. He doesn't leave it up to our resolve. For gospel citizens seeking to give gospel evidence, He gives gospel gifts. God doesn't just call us to buck up under trial No, he gives the specific grace needed in your specific trial. But that grace doesn't always come as we expect it. Here's what I mean. Look with me at verse 29. It says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you catch that? God has graciously given to us, literally, to believe unto Christ. It's a gift of God. So you didn't all of a sudden weigh the evidence in your sinful brain, talk to yourself in your sinful heart that hated God, and then tell your dead and sinned will, you know what, I'm going to pick Jesus. No. If you are united to God by faith in Christ just as Jesus came and stood outside the tomb of dead Lazarus and called him back to life. And Lazarus could not have chosen to restop his heart. No, I'm going to stay here. I'm good. He could not have chosen to disobey the voice of his Lord and Savior who said, come forth. So too you and I were called from death to life by the voice of our Savior. His sovereign love, by his irresistible grace, brought us to life. And when we heard the call of our Savior in the gospel, we could not help but believe. You see, in the gospel, it is we hear that we are sinners. And before, it really ticked us off that he would say that. But now suddenly, we believe it, and we hate our sin. In the gospel, we hear that we are under God's wrath and curse for our sins. And before, that offended us so deeply. How dare you? But now we believe it, and we desperately want out from under that wrath and curse for our sin. In the gospel, we hear that Jesus lived obediently for us, then died to forgive us of God's wrath. And we even celebrate that death in this table. And whereas before we thought that was barbaric and and crude, now we want to cling to that for our only hope, because we have nothing else. In the gospel, we hear that to prove that his death worked for sin. That he did not deserve to die, but rather he died for his people. The grave could not hold him, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. And whereas before we thought that was a nice little myth the church invented, or we thought it was one of the dumbest things we ever heard because, you know, people stay dead, now we cannot help but cry out with our whole heart, Hallelujah, he is risen! in the gospel when we hear repent and believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Before we had no desire to do that. But now because of the gracious gift of God, we could not stop ourselves if we tried. We cast off everything we thought we knew about religion, everything we called Christianity, and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. All that's right there in verse 29. That is pure biblical Christianity. But guess what? There's more. Not only has God graciously given His people belief in Christ, Hallelujah. He has also graciously given suffering on behalf of Christ. Um, yay, thanks for that. I mean, what a way to ruin the ride, right? I mean, thanks God, but um, I'd rather not. Please. See, but don't be so sure. Because when the opposition from the world comes, when culture is beating on your door to compromise, God gives you the grace right then to go through that trial, right then. The evidence of salvation from verse 28 is shown in the grace given in verse 29. When God has ordained for us to suffer for the gospel, he ordains the grace to come and help you endure the challenge. Oh, that is a great thing to think about. Each and every one of us in this room has a desire for our life to matter, a desire for us to count for something, to be great, to be known, just to, just to matter. All of those desires we have, you realize those are just a shadow desire. They're just, they're just a hint of the real desire of our heart is to be made worthy servants of our great king. It's part of our being made in God's image. It's part of our creatureliness, and we can run from it. We can deny it, but it doesn't go away. And I want to tell you right now, you will never be so fulfilled. You will never recognize that you matter when you are opposed for the gospel's sake. That's why, actually, I'm, I'm very hopeful and excited about the direction of our country. We Christians have had it easy for quite a long time. And if we're candid, myself included, that ease has created a nominal, shallow, slothful Faith that doesn't really make a difference in our day-to-day life. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't long for God. We long for leisure. We long for comfort. We long for peace in our heart and a rewarding home life. All good things, but those are not what we're supposed to desire and hunger and thirst for, are they? And as it becomes harder and harder to be a Christian, as we will have to suffer For our faith more and more, the grace of God will meet us there. The grace of God will mature us in that, and we will be such robust disciples. Such things may come at the price of our country. Nations rise and fall. The church remains because God is doing a great thing in his church in North America. He is building his church as he has always done through trial, through difficulty, through oppression, through persecution, bringing about his strong grace to rid our lives of the idols that we've been serving for so long. Oh, it's a great thing. It's a good thing. So if you've ever read the New Testament, and if you've ever thought to yourself, man, to have a faith like Paul's, well, then it's time for you to rejoice. Because that is is exactly where Paul ends this chapter. He says, look, y'all, we are in the same contest. We're in the same battle. I have to have the same kind of faith. The reason Paul had such great faith is because he had such great suffering, and God met him in that suffering. The struggles that grew his faith were the struggles that the Philippian church was going through, and they are the struggles that are coming to us in America. So instead of letting it cause you to be anxious and depressed for the future, Believe God's word that the sovereign Lord brings about pressure on his people to build them up by his grace and to make them great disciples of Christ. Because when the world gets tough, when life gets tough, we show a watching world if the gospel is real or not. Drink deeply of God's grace as it comes in your challenges. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for the grace you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that it was while we were yet sinners you sent your Son to come to us, that you did not tell us to clean our act up and then you would accept us. No, you accepted us and then cleaned us up. Thank you for that. We thank you that you are continuing to clean us up through your gospel, usually through pressure, through difficulty and challenge. And Lord, even though it's hard, we pray that you would continue to bring the challenges that we might grow. Lord, we ask that as you yourself promised, that if you be lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. We pray that as Lord Jesus has been portrayed as the Messiah who lived and died and was raised for his people, that you would do your work of salvation and draw people to your kingdom. Now we ask that you would do this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.